Well, to the Hypnotic Comic Live Show. Finding that entertainment without meaning isn't cutting it anymore? Do you want to feel deeply connected yet lifted up into the heights of laughter? You found that place where comedy meets the full expansion of life's possibilities. Now, for your hypnotically comical host, Jenna Grayson. Thank you so much. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. I am Jenna Grayson, your host uh, for the Hypnotic Comic Live show. Welcome, 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 welcome. So excited to have you here with us. Um, so I am uh, Jenna Grayson, and I am both a hypnotherapist and a stand-up comic, and I'm performing regularly at Comedy Store in Hollywood on um, Sunset Boulevard, which is uh, super cool. You may have heard of it before, you know, the Comedy Store. We're such comics as, uh, let's see, like David Letterman, Jerry Seinfeld, Robin Williams got their start, and Dave Chappelle was recently there. So I'm just plugging it to make it sound cool, make me sound cool, and uh, also... Um, do one-on-one sessions with hypnotherapy and group meditation classes. So I'm so grateful today to have a very cool and very special, very exceptional guest on the show today. Today our guest is Sir Mike Oliveri. Woohoo! And um, Mike, I got a silence my phone here. So I got a. Um, I got the rare and really special opportunity of um, meeting Mike in Hollywood. Um, I believe it was Hollywood. And he's a really extraordinary human being. Mike um, has a really rare condition and at the same time is, in an, is an external rare condition and is also in an internal rare condition. And I would love it, Mikey, if you could um, take the time to sort of explain and tell us about yourself and your life story and, um, you know, if we could find some nuggets of wisdom that I've always been seeking. I think, I, I think I've known you for like 10 years, I want to say. Probably closer, yeah, probably 9, 10 years. I moved here uh, 10 years ago from New Jersey uh, when I was you. 24. Yeah, thank you. That's right. We're both Jersey babies. I was also born in Jersey and uh, often say that my first language was Jersey English. But uh, it, it is a, it is a different kind of English altogether. <laughs> it is. You know, when I first came here to California, I was speaking Jersey English, and people, the other little kids would be like, "What?" And I'd mm-hmm. be like, "Open the drawer. Open the drawer. Get some coffee. Open the drawer." They'd be like, "Open the what?" The drawer. The drawer. I was like, I, I had like a cigarette in my mouth at the age of three. You know, I was born with it. Um, some people get a silver spoon. I got a cigarette. Anyway, so um, welcome to the show, Mike. Uh, appreciate you being here with us and taking your valuable time here. And um, you want to give us a little background, like you know, sure. 
your your story. Can you open up the mic to you? Yeah, life. life. Tell us everything. Um, so things started out for me in New Jersey, as it did for you. And uh-huh. uh, I immediately moved to Indonesia with my family because of my father's work. So uh, it was very different. My story, you know, is very different from most people. It's just off the bat where, you know, not growing up in America is uh, kind of a, a completely different experience from, you know, moving uh, from growing up in the kids. Like all the kids that I was friends with didn't do any of the things that I did. Uh, and they were going to get Slurpees and do all these weird things that I had never even heard of. Um, but uh, I was born with a rare condition called muscular dystrophy, which uh, it's it's kind of like uh, it's like the you can either use it or you lose it kind of disease. Um, whereas uh, everybody has a normal amount of dystrophin in their body, and dystrophin is kind of what gives muscles their oomph. And mm-hmm. without dystrophin, every time you use your muscles, it, it kind of just, the muscle fibers tear, and then the muscle kind of just fades away and kind of just dissolves. So mm-hmm. um, growing up, I didn't really know what was, you know, my future. And the doctors, they didn't know very much back in the 80s, and whatever they did know was kind of limited. So they just said, oh, you know, you might not live to be, Uh, past your 20s and uh, when you find that out then you're seven years old you know you're already a third of the way through your life according to their you know timetable Uh, it definitely messes with your head a little bit and uh, sure I kind of just you know I found out right around the time that I actually moved back to America which was the worst possible time to find out about something like that because uh, I didn't deal with cruelty until I moved to America. Uh, Kids in Indonesia don't kind of pick on other kids for things that they can't help. Uh, There's just a different kind of respect level uh, Mm -hmm. in Indonesia. And basically my first day of school when I was seven years old in America, I came home crying because... Everybody was, you know, noticing the way I walked and, and kind of poking fun at me and saying the cruelest things that I had really never heard before. Mm-hmm. So it was uh, it was hard for me to find myself, especially thinking that, you know, I, I don't have much left to go and I'm going to die before I get to do any of the things that I really want to do. And, uh, and that, you know, that's not really a great way to look at your life. Even absolutely. if that's your scenario, you know. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's some of the biggest life challenges I think that anyone that I have known, anyone that I know or have known, you know, to come into the world with such great challenges. Um, it could be worse. I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of kids that have cancer, you know, and it's at seven mm-hmm. and eight and nine years old, and uh, you know, I used to think I had it the worst in the world, but there's I could be born deformed. I could be born with a, getting an early form of cancer, and uh, I think I got pretty lucky. But I didn't really have that viewpoint until later on in my twenties. Yeah. Right. When did, what was it like growing up? You know. Well, first of all, I want to ask you 
what was it like to receive that kind of diagnosis? I know you said that it can mess with your head, but I want to ask you to like talk about that a little bit more. What is that like as a seven-year-old, as much as you can remember, to receive a diagnosis that um, tells you your body's going to be degenerating, right, and that you might not live into your 20s? What, what is that like for you as a seven-year-old? I think the best way to describe it, it's like imagine taking all the things that you love in the world, all the things that you like to do, the things that you enjoy, uh, whether it's, you know, airplanes or cars or animals or art or, you know, swimming or just anything, anything that you enjoy doing in life, any plans that you have for your future, any dreams to become something, to be a doctor, to, to be a, or anything. And then in one conversation, you take all of your hopes and dreams and you instantly throw them in the garbage because somebody says, no, 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 no. It's not going to be like this. It's, it might be like this. It could be worse like that. And you'll definitely be in a wheelchair and, um, and you're probably going to die in your twenties. So, uh, sorry. And that's not necessarily what they're telling you, but. To a seven-year-old, when you want to be a race car driver or a rock star or, you know, any of the things that kids want to be, um, it pretty much takes all that and trashes it instantly. So it's like, what do I have to look forward to? Why why am I going to try if none of the things I want are within my radar, within my grasp? And how did you cope? I mean, I feel like a lot of us would just give up or we would just end it, you know, or have no interest in pursuing life experiences. And I know that on the other side of that deep sorrow and loss and disappointment and heartbreak, there has been a really exceptional life that has flourished from you, that has blossomed well, from you. You, know, you, know? you met me after I flipped the script. And, uh, you know, for the majority of the beginning half of my life, it was anger uh, that kind of drove me. And I know anger is not really the best of the emotions, um, but anger Better actually can depression. Mm, depression was there, yeah. but Anger helped, as strange as it actually sounds, even for me to say. No, right I now. get it. Absolutely. Um, I mean, anger gives you a little bit of power and movement, whereas depression is just like debilitating. Gives you a reason. Depression is kind of debilitating, and it just completely you know takes your legs out from underneath you. But sometimes anger yeah. can fight you to fight for something. That's um, right. And That's why I say I, it's better. And I'm really lucky because growing up, uh, my very first friend in America just so happened to be the bad kid, you know, that is very (laughs) popular in school. Everybody Mm -hmm. loves him, but he's very mischievous. He does ridiculous things all the time, always getting into trouble. Um, Mm -hmm. But for me, he was a kind of bridge because kids respected me simply because I was friends with him and he defended me and he stuck up for me. He made sure nobody messed with me. And he also had a lot of the same interests that I did. You know, he loved to, you know, do crazy things and jump on the trampoline and 
ride go-karts and, you know, just mm. be a crazy kid. And for me, uh, my dad, who was very afraid of my disease, didn't want me riding go-karts, didn't want me with the um, bad kids, didn't want me, he didn't want me to basically fuck up. You know what I mean? My, my dad thought, yeah. oh, let me, let me keep this kid on the straight edge and I think he'll turn out good. Um, but the fact that he was like that was perfect because he didn't understand my situation and he didn't respect any of the things I loved and he gave me a reason to fight for him because if you really want something, how badly do you want it? That's the only question that will depend on whether you, if you get, whether you get the, uh, the end result and that depends on how badly you want it. And, mm. um, mm-hmm. and I wanted a moped and I wanted to go out with my friends and stay out whenever I wanted. And, and literally he made it difficult. And I said, Oh, well, you don't want me to have it. And muscular dystrophy doesn't want me to have the dreams that I want to have. So screw you. <laughs> Why am I going to let really? two things control my life? Absolutely. You know, I, I, I already have to give it up to the disease, but to give it up to you as well. Sorry, Dad. Um, yeah. And my and my mom was super supportive because she had a brother who had this disease. So it's almost like the universe trained her to mm-hmm. understand what it was like to deal with somebody with muscular dystrophy. And yeah. uh, and it was just you know I, I dealt with it with drugs and with venting with you know doing mischievous things and being bad and drinking and and you know just trying to do the things that I really wanted to do while I could and uh unfortunately that involved dropping out of high school and you know hanging out with kids I shouldn't have and making a lot of mistakes but um I I often think about if there were no drugs if there were no outlets for me to get lost in and and make mistakes with, uh, I'm not sure that I would have had the patience to get through some of the most depressing and down years of my life. Um, yeah. yeah, that makes sense. I get that. Like you it, know, it's like, I, it's, I think I, I hear that in you. Go ahead. Yeah. It's very weird uh, because, you know, now I th- I take the stance of, you know, don't do drugs. You know, you know, especially not don't do the heavier drugs that are so, so damn bad for your body. But at the same time, if somebody were to choose between drugs and suicide, I would hand them whatever they needed. That's right. You know, I guess I appreciate that because nobody freaking talks about that. And, you know, and I think there's a lot to be said for that, like, so many of the people, you know, I don't know if you know this, but I went to dr- to jail for drugs. This is little innocent me. You went to jail. I went to jail, I went to jail motherfucker. I went to jail you are bad. I'm a bad. I'm a bad ass. What'd you so get? So anyway, for? I did, and I was at one point in a cell. It was only overnight, though, so it's kind of cute. It still it's counts. Cute. Though. It still counts. It still counts. It still makes me bad. I still have a spider web tattoo on my elbow from my night in jail. Um, not really. But uh, I, you know, I was the longest period of time was in a room, as in a cell full of eleven women, and nine out of the eleven of us were there for drugs. And I knew I wasn't going to stay very long. And I always, you know, I've always had this sort of social scientist in me, and like, you know, interest in like how the world works and why society is as it is, and. 
Um, so I just really observed it and, um, I was thinking about it and talking to the girls in there and I was like, we're all just self-medicating, you know, we're all just doing the best that we can and we're being held as criminals for it. And I get that this isn't the high road we've taken, but nevertheless, this is the best that we got right now. And I do think that part of it is just like the whole medical system, you know, and like, how do people approach mental health and how do people approach, how does the system approach our suffering and how, you know, for you specifically here, Mike, like how do you feel like the medical system dealt with the emotional aspects of all that you were losing and all that you were facing? Like, no, they didn't. Was there, (laughs) there was no, there was no addressing of that. Yeah. It was simply outside in. You need X to feel Y. So, Take this pill, right. take this, try this, try that. And, uh, you know, and I went to therapy, but all it was was a way to manipulate my father to give me what I wanted. Uh, oh, wow. That's not good therapy. I, I, I knew I had, you know, weight with uh, my mom and dad because mom wanted one thing for me and she saw the, the need to do things when I wanted to do them. I mean, the, I wanted to ride a moped because I only had a very brief window where I was legally allowed to and mm-hmm. physically barely capable enough to to do it. And I could barely walk. I stopped walking by 17 years old. But mm-hmm. I wow. was on this moped, you know, trying to keep it. I couldn't even pick it up if I dropped it. But I had to go to therapy for almost a year just to, you know, use every session to convince the therapist, to convince my mom and dad to, or basically just my dad, to, to do these things that I knew I had a ticking clock for. He just couldn't. All he all he operated off of was fear, you know? Yeah. I'm not, yeah. not going to let my disabled kid, and now that I'm older, if I have a disabled kid and they wanted to ride a moped, I'd be like, eh, you know, uh, no. You're going to die, and you're going <laughs> to you're gonna kill yourself. You're disabled, and I, you know, because I got a dog now. That's my kid. But if my dog wanted to go right off on a moped, I'd be like, nah, no. You want training wheels? Okay, fine. So I I totally get his side now, but. uh, Yeah. Well, you know, I think for parents, I'm not one either. I have two little dogs, too, so I'm sort of a parent to my dog. But I know it's not the same thing. I know it's not the same thing, but I think sometimes when it comes to parents, it's like, um, that blurry place where fear can cloud love, but there is, yeah. it did come from love. You know, I think like if he didn't love you, he wouldn't be afraid. He wouldn't give a shit. He, he would have been like, yeah, sure, go. give a shit. Yeah, just do whatever you want, kid. I don't care. That would have been worse. But, but I mean, I, I guess worse. the fact. But as a, as a 17-year-old, it just sounds like you're part of my nightmare right now. He was my nightmare. And it also, you know, I, I kind of needed somebody to yell at and uh I'm, yeah. and and the universe knew that and that's what you know i used to go to this uh spiritual healer back in the day and they she told my mom she goes your son picked both of you you for your love and tony for being hard and you know it's what he needs and i could have never understood it when i was younger but um mm-hmm. when i was 24 years old and bored of living at home in New Jersey. All my friends had went off to college or having kids and getting married and starting their careers. And what am I doing? Hanging out with younger and younger kids 
Um, and then all of a sudden I decided, you know what, I'm tired of living this way. And yeah. I went to my father and I said, hey, I need your help. I want to move to California. I don't want to be pressured by police in New Jersey because medical marijuana wasn't legal yet. Um, and he said no. And he goes, I built you, an, mm-hmm. you know, an addition on the house here. I have everything ready for you. I'm prepared to take care of you. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> like, you're not, I'm not going to help you move 3,000 miles away so you can live this California dream. Um, mm-hmm. Again, more fear coming out, you know. But like I said, it, if I wasn't pissed at him and he didn't tell me no, I wouldn't have said, oh, yeah, well, fuck you. I'm going to make it happen. Right. Just to just to fucking prove you wrong. It uh, sounds like, you know, it sounds like in some ways your dad is like this outpicturing of like the voice within that could be like, um, excuse me, Mike, just under the, like, you know, like a quieter, we all have those inner voices that tell us what we can and can't do, you know, but your dad's voice was like, you can't do this. And you're like, F you. Yes, I can. You know, like. Yeah. I mean, you didn't think. And I don't blame them. I mean, if I had a disabled kid and they said, I want to go live by myself with no help, no nothing. Yeah. I'd be like, boy, how are you going to poop? How are you going to eat? How are you going to change right. your clothes? How are you going to... You kidding me right now? And it, and I get it now. It's I put him through freaking hell. But it, it was yeah. unfortunately, it was just the way it needed to be to create yeah. the perfect storm for me to have the motivation to do what I want because most kids with my disability or any disability uh, get coddled and get protected Mm -hmm. and not pushed. You know, even if it's pushed by accident, they don't get that. They get complete understanding. They get complete allowance to do whatever they want to do because most parents say, poor kid, fuck, you know, I I gotta, I gotta give them anything they want. And that would probably be pacifying for you in a way. You know what I mean? Like, I imagine that if I was your mom or I was a mom of a disabled child, that I would probably be more like that. I would be like, is this comforting for you? Is this comforting for you? Is yeah. this comfortable for you? Is this is this make it better? What makes it better? You tell me. You know, like, I would want to be that kind of mom. And also, and I you know. the downside of that, too. Like, kids need to make mistakes, right? And if you keep protecting right. your child to make them feel safe and comforted, you're doing them a freaking disservice because they're not ever living and they're not ever falling down right. and they're not ever getting right. calluses. And the more you fall, right. the more your skin gets tough, the more you can do it. Right. And, uh, and you're saying that both in a literal and figurative way at the same time, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know a lot of kids with disabilities and you know what their lives are like. Boring, simple, repetitive, safe. They don't want to take chances. They're afraid to travel. And, you know, my father took me around the world countless times before I was even six years old. I'd been around the world three times. And and I never understood why. Protect you huh? then. He didn't. He didn't only protect you then, right? He ex- he exposed us to a lot in the world. Um, yeah. We, we we didn't get the big screen TVs and a million video games, three video game systems. We had a vacation every year that was either Africa or Galapagos Islands or south of France or you know Italy all over. Uh, you know we did mm. huge amazing trips. Awesome. 
that uh, kind of opened my borders a little bit. You know, kids are kind of sheltered a little bit. When you shelter somebody, they don't feel comfortable even leaving their town. You know, I know people that have never left their town. Right. And, you know, I'm so thankful that at a young age, my father said, no, you know, this kid needs to travel and experience and learn. And even though, like, you know, I look at him like always trying to disable me more, I guess, and kind of take things away from me and limit yeah. me. Uh, yeah. He knew that there were certain trips that I had to do when I was physically able to do them. And okay. we did them when we had to do them. And I, he, so he got it in some aspects, but he didn't get it in terms of me being a kid and, and me yeah. hanging out with the wrong kids like he did. You know, he always gave me this uh, version of himself that was so perfect. Never did anything wrong, never broke the rules, yeah. never went out yeah. drinking. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And that's totally not honest because I heard so many stories from all his friends of him doing fucked up stuff. And yeah. the fact that he lied to me for the majority of my childhood, trying to make me feel like he was impeccable, uh, maybe not trust him and believe in him because, yeah. you know, he didn't trust me enough to be right. open and honest with me. So... Yeah, it's it's weird how the perfect storm can can help somebody in the end. Um, yeah, it's like it gave you so much fire. Like I still hear that fire in you now, and I've always heard that fire in you. And usually, it's directed towards your dad, but at the same you know, time, it's like, yeah, Mike. Like I love that fire about you, and um, I think that that's really what made you a big part of what made you really exceptional is that fire in your gut that's like, I'm not going to sit back and just take this just because you see me in this specific way and you want to see yourself in this specific way and you want me to see you in this specific way. I'm not going to just sit back and let all of this stuff just happen. And, you know, a lot of of that fire is how my dad got a lot of things in his life. I mean, I was so similar to him that Mm -hmm. I never really saw it. Um, I only mm-hmm. saw like the negative side. I'm like, oh, I'm similar to my dad. My dad's an asshole. You call, calling me an asshole now? Um, mm-hmm. But <laughs> when I when he pretty much. Uh, but then when he would tell me when he would tell me stories of his life, there was so much fire in it. There was mm. so much drive. There was, and, and then I looked at my life and I'm like, oh, that's where I got it all from. I just resented him because he told me no a few times. Um, yeah, yeah. And I put him down, and I blasted him online, and you know, uh, we have the best relationship right now. That all changed oh four God. years ago. Wow, um, that's so good to hear, man. I'm so happy to hear that. I, I almost died. You know, I was on intravenous feeding tubes. I was 78 mm-hmm. pounds. I was trying to get off of 12 milligrams of Xanax a night. Uh, and I, I, I was literally so, I'd been to the emergency room maybe like 10 times within like a one, one or two month period uh, to the point where, you know, when the, they came to pick me up, they go, oh, Mike, again? Hey, buddy, where do you want to go today? And I would pick a different hospital to see if they could help me. Um, and I just was, I said, you know what? I think that all the anger, all the frustration, all the grudges, all the beef with people, with situations, with I said, you know what, maybe all of that is killing me. 
you know, maybe my mind is killing my body. So I was like, how about I just make peace with everyone? Anyone that I'm fighting with, anyone I'm arguing with, anyone that I'm at peace, I'm I'm at total war with. And obviously the first person was my dad. And I remember I just called him up and I'm like, dad, I'm done. I'm sorry. Like, I am done fighting you. I'm done making you the enemy. I'm so sorry. I don't expect you to believe me, but from now on, you'll see a difference. And I can't wait to, you know, get closer with you and finally show you how much I really do appreciate how he's trained me perfectly for my life. Um, oh, my God. And, you know, the first couple of trips weren't seamless and perfect. You know, they were, they were had some bumps in the road, but... Uh, after a while, he started realizing that I'm not throwing daggers at him, and he stopped throwing shit back at me. And, mm. you know, now I call him Daddy-O. And, mm. you know, oh, hey, son. And uh, it's oh. a trip. It's a trip because, uh, you know, he is my greatest teacher. Yet Absolutely. I had so much hate towards him for the majority of my life. And it's, it's crazy how... Uh, we can resent something, yet it's what we need, <laughs> you exactly. know? Exactly. I think that's, you know, I think it's just such, such a beautiful and profound story that you're telling, and I do think it's really true. You know, we're talking about a specific story, and we're talking about your story. We're talking to Mike Oliveri here, and uh, a really gifted and talented and really exceptional human being. And at the same time, we're talking about the human experience. You know, I think that what you're talking about here is really just lessons that we all need to learn, you know, because we've all got at least one, at least one, if not four or five, that we're like, this is the reason for my problem. This is the person who's at fault. This is the circumstance, even if it's the president, you know, it's like to choose somebody to direct your anger and your sense of you know, helplessness or your sense of confinement, your sense of imprisonment. Like, I absolutely relate to that myself. And, like, I also know that with, um, you know, life experiences and background and healing work and counseling and things, it's like, yeah, those are your greatest teachers. Those are the ones who will awaken you to the lessons that you've come here to learn that, that that will turn your life around, that will really save you and like I just hear that you know even on a very literal it's like the word literal is so interesting I'm always very interested about the word literal because (laughs) especially with millennials these days they're like that was literally 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 (laughs) well that language is Language has gone down to nightmare. Like, yeah. <laughs> the biggest nightmare ever. But anyway, you know, like literally as like a physical, <laughs> yeah. So, but like, I what I want to say more specifically is on a physical level, I'm going to say that on a physical level, yeah. it sounds like you learning those lessons really saved your life. Literally. Well, <laughs> you know? what's, the, what's the alternative? I, I often think about this because people kind of ask me, you know, what right. would it be like if you didn't have this disease? You know, what, what do you think your life oh. would be like? And you know what my yeah. answer is? Dead. Dead. Really? Literal, oh, literally, I would wow. be dead. Why? You know why? Why? What did I drive? When I was 15, I drove a moped. If I didn't have a disability, at 17, I'd be driving a Kawasaki Ninja. Mm-hmm. And instead of just going 40 miles an hour down the road, 
I would be going probably 200 because that's how I do things. I do it way too much uh, overboard always. And I always push the limits. And in many ways, this disease I have has saved my ass because it has forced me to slow down, even when I don't want to slow down. And it has made me face things that normally most people can just get up and walk away from a situation. And I don't have that, you know, option to just walk away. And that's been my greatest teacher because as instead of me being able to live 70 or 80 years where I literally blow off a lot of the most important things that I need to do and face and confront, um, I'm forced to face it. And I might not have the same amount of years that most people get, but uh, I feel like I get to that point of knowing myself way sooner than most people that have never faced true adversity. Um, and it's, I used to look at other people like, you know, I was jealous of them because they got to be free, you know? But yeah. now when I watch people who are disabled because of depression, disabled because of um, hating the way they look or acne or uh, just, you know, be, you don't have to have a disability to be disabled. Um, there are plenty of people that I know that are more disabled than I am with absolutely no disability, mm. with no physical thing going on. It's just they're in their head and they get stuck there and they get so lost and they feel so terrible. And instead of just accepting, you know, things about themselves they have no control over, they resent themselves and hate themselves and end up hiding themselves and get, getting lost. And then unfortunately, sometimes those people, you know, take themselves out. Yeah. And I feel so blessed sometimes because, you know, by 12 years old, I had such a different se uh, sense of self than everybody else around me by 18, by 20, by 24, you know, like, and now at 34 years old, I feel like, you know, I'm, kind of an older person and I look at kids my age and they're still dealing with um, superficial bullshit and yeah. you know just limited and not you know empowering themselves and you know everybody gets to say everybody gets something it doesn't matter what it is it doesn't matter when it is everybody has to deal with something that's difficult that's going to force them to look in the mirror and really reevaluate things and how are you going to treat that moment is what's going to uh, make the difference in your life. You know, if you're going to run away from it, are you going to cover it up or are you going to just say, all right, and that's where I'm lucky, whereas I have no choice but to say, okay, Mike, what are we going to do about this? What do you want and how badly do you want it and what are you going to let get in the way? And um, oh it's so weird. freaking beautiful. I'm sorry, I hope I'm allowed to say the F word, but it's so freaking beautiful. It's It's weird, but it's, really so extraordinary there's so many pieces of just extraordinary gems within what you're describing and I'm so grateful to hear you and it brings up so many thoughts about things other things that I want to ask you and then also things that I'm like yeah that reminds me of this thing in my life that I'm struggling with or the circumstance with my dad you know and like yeah. what my dad's going through he's going through you know, that's the, that's the place where I find peace with it is that the diseases that my dad's going through is just that. It's 
forcing him to be still. It's forcing him to go within. It's forcing him to slow down and to yeah. receive, you know, to receive. And um, I was just watching this short movie. I don't know. If you, yeah, you and I have talked about Ram Dass before because I told you you remind me of Ram Dass. And I yeah, think that's true still today. He's a cool guy. He's a cool guy, and you're now 34, which also brings up so many other like points of conversation here that I want to talk about. But I'm like, just going to put that one on the shelf for just a moment. Um, so yeah, Ram Dass, I sent you a video a long time ago, and I was like, dude, you've got to, or something, I sent you, I was like, you've got to check this guy out, because you remind me of him. And it's like, it's an exceptional compliment, and I still hold to it. You know, you're both human and you're both going through this really profound spiritual, like, overhaul. I don't know, I was like seeing an inner vacuum, like, you know, like you're both got this, like, inner cleaning lady going on that you're, you know, responsible for. And it's really confronting and it's life or death. And um, you've both been really illuminated by the stillness, the forced stillness of your situation and I was just watching this short film of his called Going Home and he's I don't know how old he is now but I want to say he's like in his 80s I mean you don't remind me of an old man but you remind me of him in those ways that like he's he's been forced to be still and my dad as well I was bringing my dad my dad now is, is being forced to be still and it's a reminder to me, like, how am I, as a person without a disability that I know of, although I think we all have our disabilities, you know, it's like you're talking about we all have to face, up, face it somehow. Um, we all have our challenges, and if you're not aware of them now, you will become aware of them at some point, for better or worse, and hopefully with some grace. And I think, you know, you telling the story, Mike, is offering that opportunity for that grace for a lot of us. Like we have to slow down. We have to go within. We have to look at what matters. We have to look at who we're being and what we're carrying in our vessel and how it might be killing us, whether it be by direct suicide you were talking about or, you know, through a disease process that forces us to, um, to look at the choices that we made. Like, you know, you described that your dad was this perfect storm and then at the Perfection. same time, he's he's your your greatest nightmare and your greatest teacher, and now he's your a, a deep relationship. I don't want to put words in your mouth there, but like it sounds like one of your greatest relationships. I mean, if, if you take him out of the equation, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. So he's your greatest gift. He's your greatest. What would you say? He's my he's my teacher. cure. He's my cure. Wow. You know. Because um, he's the thing that helps me to see past what I have, um, yeah. even if it's in the weirdest way possible. He mm-hmm. gave me the oomph, and like I said, he told me no. And uh, and all my mother would have done is tell me yes, right. sure, whatever you want. No, 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 it's okay. Yeah. She helped me drop out of high school. She helped me do everything that he was against. Um, mm-hmm. And it served its purpose at the time, and he didn't understand it, and I didn't understand it. But uh, it's sometimes so hard to see what the hell you're painting when you're so close to the canvas, you know? Uh, totally. You, you, so, you have to sometimes wait a couple of years, take a step back, and then go, oh, 
That's why all that happens. Uh, it's like they talk about Monet, you know, up close it's just a big mess, but you step away and you're like, oh, it's a beautiful lake and a garden. No, I mean, and that's, and, and I, I am so strong because of my father and I just, I would have, I get so sad because I talk to a lot of other disabled people sometimes. They they find me online, uh, they'll write to me, and they go, how do you do, how do you, how do you, I just, I say, I don't know. And I didn't know until I tried. Like, that's how you, you know, figure wait, out how What's you, the question? What's the question and what's yeah, the I don't know what referring to? How I did anything. How I... Like, how did you move out? How did I move out? How did I survive with close to no money? How did I feed myself with no help? How did I meet my favorite, you know, bands and become friends with them? How did I get a picture with you, Hefner? How did I... Anything. They they took anything that I say and they, how did you do that? How did you change the law in New Jersey? How did you... Well, I wanted to. (laughs) So badly that I didn't give a shit how badly somebody else didn't want me to. I wanted that bad that the only option was to achieve. There is no failing. And if you do something, if you do anything with the attitude that I'm not going to fail, you probably won't fail. And even if you come close to failing, you'll learn something so valuable that the next time you'll definitely get it. Um, That's amazing. Look how special you are, Mike. I hope you're hearing yourself and I hope you listen to this recording after we're done because this is like, you know, this is I think some of the stuff that people look at you and you're like, I don't know. And now you're like, this is, this, this is, this is why I'm just really, your life is so exceptional. Why you're such an exceptional human being and why you're such a great teacher to me and um, your whole family and everybody who's blessed enough to know you and, you know, hopefully hear this as well. Um, So I appreciate that. The most important thing was that I decided I deserved it. Um, and I don't think a lot of people feel they deserve things. And uh, and that's the thing. is that even uh, Why not? I mean, that's always my answer. I always think, well, why shouldn't I get what I want? Um, if everybody else can go after the dreams they want and those dreams work for their lives, why can't my dreams work for my life? And the ones that I get, I understand why I get them. And the ones that I don't achieve, I understand why I don't get them as well. And I'm not meant to have everything. You know, nobody is. We, you, <laughs> You're not supposed to get every single thing in life you want. Um, but I think that once you get on a roll of achieving and getting things, you kind of don't stop. You know what I mean? Rather than when you get stopped in your tracks and you don't get what you want, you don't have motivation to usually try again. And uh, and that's why I wish people would just start going for what they want rather than just settling and settling and giving up and giving in and saying, oh, yeah, fine, I can't, I, yeah, I won't get that. This Why? Is close enough, but this is safe. This is safe. Oh, it's good enough. I'm making 70K, you know, it's fine. You know, I, I, I really, I don't think I have what it takes to, to make 100 or two. And, and you know, it's like that great uh, Ford quote, uh, whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. And uh, that's, Unfortunately, the, that's like the law of the universe. You know, whatever you believe will be true. Your mentality creates your reality, not the other way around. 
when I went, I went. Wow, that's such a great quote. I hope that's yours. I it's not my quote. I wish I wish I could take credit for it. Uh, <laughs> I really I'm do. But, it to you. I'm putting your name after it. Uh, well, I'll, I'll take it, but it ain't me. Uh, but basically, <laughs> when my when my mentality pre 24, or actually pre pre 20 years old, about uh, was that everywhere I go in life, people are going to make fun of me that I'm never going to achieve what I want, that everybody's going to mock me, that all the kids are going to look at me weird, and that everybody that looks at me is automatically thinking the most negative things in the world. And that was my, that was my story. And my life went exactly like that. Even if that's not exactly the way it was happening, that's how I took it, and that was my existence. And then I remember when I changed the story, uh, I was doing this education thing called Landmarks. Education, you know, landmark. You've heard of them before? Yeah. Yes, yes. And, you know, this, we had to do an exercise where they're like, all right, we're going to get you to write a sob story. Basically, imagine you're complaining to your best friend or your mother or somebody and you're just venting. Let it all out on the paper. You have 45 minutes, go. So I wrote my sob story. You know, I was like, oh, I'm going to die in my 20s and. I'm not going to do the things I want to do. You know, it was just a sob, crappy, shitty story. And at the end of the time limit, they say, okay, everybody get a random partner you've never met before. Sit face to face and read your story out loud over and over and over again. And I'm like, oh, this was supposed to be for me or my mother or my best friend. I got to read it to a stranger now. Mm-hmm. And as I read my sob story... They said, okay, when you're done, read it again and again and again. And on my first time reading it, it was embarrassing. Second time reading it, it was still embarrassing. But on the third time of reading it, something happened halfway through it where all of a sudden I started laughing, like fucking hysterically laughing at the story. Because as Mm. I read it a third time, I got to see how ridiculous it sounded how stupid and untrue it was. Mm. And they said, this is the story of your life. Why don't you go ahead and write a better one? And I was like, oh, what a great idea. Fuck that story. (laughs) And I changed the story to, my name is Mike Oliveri. I'm going to have an incredible life. I'm going to meet all of the heroes that I know and love, all my idols. I'm going to have girls beyond girls. I'm going to have an independent life. I'm going to do rock star things. I am going to live the greatest life ever. (laughs) And literally that afternoon, I had three random girls from that event in my car coming to lunch with me. And all of a sudden, everybody seemed to look at me differently. And I realized that it it was just the simple switch in my head. That's from amazing. You, that's that's such a powerful people, teaching. Yeah. People are amazing. And that's where I met you because you would have never mm. caught me dead in a public place where I can ask for attention, ask for people to see me. Excuse me, sir, can you get out of my way? I'm in my wheelchair and I want to come to the front of the stage so I can see the show. And you would have never caught me dead where you found me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the story went to, you know what? I'm going to go out. I'm going to see some rad music. I'm going to be with some awesome people. I'm going to smoke a lot of weed, and it's going to be a great night. And as a result, what happened? Exactly that. Bass Nectar was killing it. 
Okay. It was such a cool place, and the vibe was so good, and I was feeling so independent, so alive, 3,000 miles away from New Jersey, 3,000 miles away from my angry father who didn't believe in me at all. Well, he really did, but that's how I saw it. And I was on top yeah. of the world when I met you. And yeah. that's the simple result of just changing my story. And I, I know you don't have to have a disability to have a shitty story. Uh, that's right. Everybody has a shitty story, but the thing is, that's not necessarily <laughs> who they are. That's just, you know, what they're telling themselves they are. And yeah. all they got to do is be a little nicer. <laughs> be kind to yourself, you know. That's right. I have a friend um, named Suzanne, and she works with children with autism, and she says we all have a disability. I think it's such oh, yeah. a compassionate place to just say, like, we're all struggling with something, and you can hate yourself about it. You can drink it down so you don't have to look at it. You can drug yourself so you don't have to deal with it. Or we can just have compassion and be kind, like you're saying, and just be like, this is my personal disability, and this is what I'm struggling with, and this is what I'm seeking to get over the hump. And I think yours is so profound. You know, it's like <clears throat> your version is everybody's story, but it's also just only yours at the same time. You know, it's like you are such a light in the world and such an exceptional example of the capacity to overcome. And yet here we all are in our, you know, ordinary bodies and struggling so much, suffering so much um, just to appreciate the lessons that we're being faced with and not feeling like a victim to our stories. And that's just something that I've always seen in you. And that day that I met you at that Base Nectar show, I was like, him. I didn't know exactly what it was, but I was like, he is a very special human. And I knew in that moment what really lit up about you for me was that you weren't afraid. Where I could look around at everyone in the Space Nectar concert in the middle of Hollywood that we were so fortunate to be able to be there, to be able to dance, to be able to attend to drive a car, potentially, you know. I was driving. Really... Wait, let me finish I, no... I want to just say real quick, nobody looked really happy. Nobody looked truly content, except for you. You like, in your really these... special circumstance. Yeah, go ahead. It, it was all of the stairs that I had climbed. So, I mean, like, what you had seen me smiling was like... I was on the top of the mountain. I had yeah. I had braved cross country. I was starving every single night. I didn't have. I had less money. I had negative money every every month. My my social security check was eight hundred and forty. My rent was nine hundred and sixty. So, Dang. but but for me to be living exactly the way I wanted to be living, uh, even though it was just a show, and that's the thing is everybody looks at it like it's just another show. It's just another night, and I looked at it like this is the pinnacle of my life. This yeah. is that moment that I climbed all those steps. I fell down, I got back up, I fell down, I got back up, and I'm here doing exactly what I wanted to be doing rather than mm -hmm. just feeling like I had to settle. And, yeah. you know, it, because I've had to go through so much, it makes me appreciate every single day. And I think that when you have nothing challenging your life, uh, you don't have an appreciation for what 24 hours is. Yeah. It's just another annoying day. 
for some people rather than this could be the last day you're alive. Yeah, um, yeah. and so, that's I mean, one of the most exceptional things about you, too, is the degree to which you have had to face your own death. I mean, even since the age of seven, and I think that puts you in a really rare and exceptional place. And, you know, I heard you saying that it, it turned to a lot of anger and self-destruction. And at the same time, you know, when the switch did flip for you at age 17 and ongoing, you know, there's um, there's been this extraordinary light in you that says life is a gift and I get to be alive. And I see that in you, and I know that in you. And and you have faced death in a way that I think most humans, especially your age, you know, every every year of your life up until now at the age of 34, very rare for people to face death in the ways that you've had to and you've sort of gotten to. And I don't mean to make light of it, but just to say, like, that it's a huge it's a huge part of what I see is you know what makes you such a special teacher, a special example, a special human being where so many of us are focused on the burdens of life and the responsibilities and the but even even that money is not real life either though, and Absolutely. I think that's also part of the problem is that I think especially here in America, people get caught up in kind of the robotic, you know, go to school, go to get a job, work, blah, 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 blah. And that, you know, they get caught up in the process and they forget to talk and feel. And the things that they teach in school are not how to feel. It's facts and things and half the shit that we're never, ever going to use in life. And I, I just feel like there's there's so much missing and there's so much feeling missing. Right. And and I think that that's, you know, it's really um, what this time on our planet is really calling for is for us to be able to go into feeling. And for so long, feelings sounded like, you know, woo-woo stuff that only is relevant to girls and it's weak and it comes and it goes. But, you know, with a story like yours, it's like that was your cure. That was that's a huge part of what has gotten you not only past the age of 20, but into the age of 34 and ongoing is to look at those feelings and to talk about them and to find a way through them and to acknowledge how much they do actually mean and how much they're either limiting you or they're giving you life. Well, unfortunately, like most people just get a pill instead of sitting down and having a conversation. And they get put into a box and they say, oh, I'm like this, I have this, I have that condition. And, and, you know, they're so quick to believe the first thing the doctors tell them. And it's scary. And the thing is, I don't think that uh, there's a lot of freedom being offered. I don't think there's a lot of it. I don't think people want, and when I say people, I think, you know, the government, I don't think they want people to be in touch with themselves. Right. I think they. I think everything that likes, I, I think the system, the evil system that's going, just likes people to be scared, likes people to stay really home. Well. It works really well to control people. 
to yeah. control people. Yeah. It works really well to keep people scared and to keep the solutions, as you brought up before, from the outside in, whether it be from the government or from a pill for some kind of, you know, quote unquote expert, whether it be, you know, our parents or the doctors that will tell you what to be afraid of and how to react and what pill to take and what to swallow, both figuratively Mm -hmm. and literally. And you are an extraordinary example and one of my teachers and reminders in this way that the solutions are not outside in. That those can, that's like a, you know, a great band-aid. It's great to be able yeah. to take an Advil now and then, but it's never going to be your life solution. It's never what's going to be the thing that cures your situation or extends your life or gives you life satisfaction or fulfillment or connection or the things that we're all really deeply craving. The pill is never the answer and the outside is never the answer. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I was young, I was on a lot of opiates. Uh, mm-hmm. from 14 years old up until 20. And yeah. I had a lot of back pain. You know, I was transferring from walking to going into a wheelchair, and there's a lot of, you know, awkwardness that goes on with the spine and with sitting all the time. And and I started going on pills, and then I moved up to the fentanyl patch, which is, you know, about fentanyl. It's, it's like super heroin. And okay. uh, I, I was on that patch for four years. And to the point where I was on a dose that was, I was on 125 micrograms per hour, which 100 micrograms per hour was not supposed to be for anybody under 150 pounds. I was 100 pounds, and I was on 125 an hour. And I was experiencing the exact same amount of pain at 20 years old, the highest dose as I was when I was just taking a couple uh, Vicodin or hydrocodone a day. And it's just because you're not going to cure pain with a pill. (laughs) You know, it'll numb you out for a little bit, but then eventually your body gets used to it and you're going to feel the same amount of pain. And you know what the best painkiller is? Mm. Your mind. (laughs) Wow. Focusing on something that's positive, focusing on something you want. Like I have, more pain than I ever did when I was 14 years old and I take zero painkillers because I just simply know how to focus my mind and to not just focus on what sucks. Um, And, you know, yet there are people who, you know, the opiate epidemic is terrible, heroin. Uh, There's all these people who are medicating and they don't realize that they're not even helping themselves. They're just, just kind of debilitating themselves and, and taking something away and kicking their legs out from underneath themselves. And um, and unfortunately, there's nothing that'll tell them that they can have power. And usually to get off any medication is withdrawal, which is even worse than it was for the reason that you got on the medication. Because withdrawal is... Have you ever gone through any withdrawal, Jenna? No, I haven't. Just a hangover. Oh, I think that counts. Uh, A hangover is like one (laughs) one hundredth of what withdrawal is like. Um, But, you know, when your body's shaking and the hot and cold sweats and there's more pain going through your your body than you've ever experienced. And, uh, you know, most people, when they start going through withdrawal, they say, you know what, fuck that. I'm going right back on the pill and I'm just going to go right back to sleep. 
And yeah. that's unfortunately what the majority of the country is dealing with right now. And I think that's a much bigger disability than any muscular dystrophy, any, you know, Parkinson's or cerebral palsy, anything. I think the fact that somebody is just keeping you asleep and telling you you're powerless and telling you you need medication, you need this, you need that. Okay, sure, thanks. I think that's what's killing humanity. Um, and I just wish that there was something that could come in and educate people uh, to use their minds, like I think other countries are doing much more than America. Um, yeah, well, we're but, starting it now, and thank you so much for sharing all of that. I mean, that this is the conversation that I'm so much wanting to have and that is necessary to have, whether it be through the listeners hearing it on this show um, or just through, you know, different conversations that we got to keep continuing to have to keep, you know, charging, as I say, charging the matrix, you know, with this kind of consciousness, with this kind of awareness and that you are living proof. You are absolutely indeed in life, in body, in form, living proof that the power of the mind that the going within to overcome our life challenges, you know, doesn't mean that everything's going to, we're going to get everything we want, like you said, but um, we'll get the lessons that we're meant to live and, and to really be liberated is an inside job. And, and thank you so much for sharing that. We're, we're at the end of our time here. I have so many other things that I want to talk to you about. We got to do this again, dude. I really have like, uh, questions that are developing as we go. I want to talk to you about how you changed the law in New Jersey and how you got to spend time with Paris Hilton and your favorite band Tool, Richard Branson, Hugh Hefner. Like, we haven't even talked about it. We haven't talked about the fact that you're 34 <laughs> and you were told that you weren't going to live past 20. Um, well, you, you know, know, that's... We got some you shouldn't believe, to talk You shouldn't about. believe what people tell you, you know? You that's, shouldn't believe anything it. that doesn't that's empower right. you. Oh God! Hallelujah! Well, thank you so much for having me. I really, uh, I really enjoyed it, and uh, oh I look forward God. to the next one. It's such a gift to me, Mike. Thank you for being alive. Thank you for choosing life over and over again. I know that it was your, you know, clear choice that's kept you here, and it's been a great gift to my heart and soul, and um, to all of our listeners as well. We're talking today. To Sir Mike Oliveri, you can reach him uh, if you would like more information to communicate with him. His number, or I'm sorry, I'm going to say his uh, email address is Mike at MikeyWheels.com. And I'll repeat that, Mike, M-I-K-E, at Mikey, M-I-K-E-Y, Wheels.com. Thank you so much, Mikey. Thanks, I love Jenna. you so much and appreciate you so much. And yeah, I would like to I love you too. you again. Thank and, you, yeah, let's get those other questions answered. And uh, appreciate you so much. And a uh, big shout-out to our brother Doug for running and producing the show. Um, this show is being um, aired live on BBS Radio and then also going to be uh, recorded and played on iTunes podcast and also on iHeartRadio and a bunch of other Yay. things. Pretty rad! Yay! So thanks so much, and we will talk to you again next Monday. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Mikey. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Jenna.